and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I am Dr. Joe Stoltz. In this episode, I sit down with Scott Miller, a graduate student in history at University of Virginia and a former Washington Library fellow. And also, if you are not already following us on social media, please do so at facebook.com slash the Washington Library or on Twitter and Instagram at GWBooks. Hey, Scott. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and talking with us. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, so you are one of our former fellows. Yes. Um, how have things been since you left us and Baby Bird left the nest? Yes, I did. Um, things have been great progressing along. Uh, I was here for about six months and working on my dissertation the whole time. And since then, um, not only have I finished the draft of the dissertation, I'll be finishing up in October. I'll be defending in October. Um, but I actually just handed in the first full completed uh, draft yesterday, oh. two, two days ago, actually. Nice. Yeah. You get the official announcement on here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so prior to that, though, so what's, what's sort of your background? How did you, how did you come to be who you are? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, proud Westerner in that regard, went to college in Southern California, was always interested in history, but uh, I'm dyslexic, and so reading was something I did, but it was because I liked to know things as opposed to reading for pleasure, I guess you could say. Um, But doing what I do is kind of an interesting way I came about it because I hated econ. I hated finance. I thought it was uh, uninteresting. I didn't really have a knack for it anyway. Um, And so I got the worst grades of my whole undergrad career in micro and macro, which people and, and my students find interesting today, given were what you, I do. Were you an econ major? Or no, major? I was a history and poli-sci major. So how did you end up in econ? Like, because I, I mean, uh-huh. most history majors I know, and, right. and I know myself, actively try to avoid anything taught by the math department. I did. How did you, did you like just rock into the wrong room or? So it was part of the, the kind of the, the liberal arts education, uh, micro macro, but that was all I did. I got horrible grades in them because I simply didn't care. Um, but the way it actually came about was I was actually in London, um, in 2008, September of 2008 with my wife and we were on our way downtown to the city to look around. Um, and as we came up that long escalator coming up, and they have those news boards at the top of the stairs with all the newspapers tacked up. And I considered myself a relatively informed person, but as we're coming up the escalator uh, out of the tube, all of the newspapers, every single one of them, have some variant of the headline, Dow Falls 777 Points. And I knew that was not good, but I didn't exactly know what that meant. And then as we proceeded to go into the city of London, the best way I can describe it is um, I saw a bunch of people who looked like I felt on 9-11. And that was, of course, the day that Congress uh, voted down the TARP legislation Mm -hmm. and the the, the bottom just fell out of the market. Um, And so I came back from that saying, okay, something is going on that's earth-shaking 
but I have no idea what it is and I need to learn. So at that point, I was uh, about a year out of uh, undergrad and working in history, but World War II aviation history. Um, and I realized that I needed to learn about economics and, and finance because that's what made the world turn and I couldn't talk about it or didn't even know how to think about it. So I spent the next three or so years just reading book after book after book after book, teaching myself econ, finance, etc. Um, and then that has blended with my interest in early American history, and, and that's where I am right now. Just, I, I just did. Yeah. The notion that you <laughs> developed your interest in the financial markets while in London, it's just I feel like Adam Smith somewhere is just smiling down on you. I'd like to think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think but, so. And Alexander Hamilton's like, nice. Yes. Nice. Yes. I, I would like to hope that Alexander Hamilton would be proud of me, even though he would probably not think I was smart enough for him and would dismiss me out of hand. And that's well, coming I mean, from that's, a that's, Hamilton guy. Well, so. and, that's, and that's nothing personal. That no. This is normal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's fascinating. So what uh, what is your dissertation uh, on then? Sure. Yeah, um, my dissertation is essentially exploring two fundamental questions. The first is really how did the American economy become American as opposed to colonial? Um, a lot of people kind of assume we come out of this colonial economy um, that was all overseas trade tied into the British Empire, but then essentially goes into, oh, then we went into the Industrial Revolution, and we have railroads and steel mills and, and then Civil War, and, and, and it just kind of zips off from there. Um, but that seemed a little bit problematic for me. And so what I really look at is how uh, over the course of the revolution and the revolutionary era, the economy evolved to kind of take on this new, uniquely American entity that we see going into the 19th century. And as I looked into it, and kind of this alludes to my previous interest in financial crises and financial panics, um, I kind of just learned randomly that the depression of the 1780s was as bad, if not worse, than the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, and so the basic question I throw around to my students is, imagine trying to form a government much less an economy in the midst of the Great Depression. And, and that fascinated me, um, is not only how we were able to survive that in some way, but actually be able to build an economy that saw pretty substantial economic growth in the 1790s and going up into the, the embargo in 1807, which obviously changed the game. So the question I have is, how did crisis and churn and uh, problems in the political, social, economic sphere kind of create this? economy that was pretty darn dynamic, um, kind of going out of the embargo, the War of 1812, and then into this era of, of Tocqueville, where he really kind of describes it in depth. So what, you know, coming out of the, the, the panic in um, the 1780s, I mean, what, what did the U.S. government do to, to reform the system or... or alter the system? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of the, the interesting question. So not only did you have, a, depending on who you ask, I would argue a five or six year depression, legitimate depression. We're not talking recession, um, fallback. We're talking a depression um, in, the, in the 1780s. But then in 1791 and then again in 1792, you have 
uh, very modern <laughs> financial panics, uh, kind of one right on top of each other. And so as you're looking at the Depression itself, the federal government really didn't exist in the iteration that we have today. And I would actually make the argument that the constitutional regime we have um, is a product mm -hmm. of depression and the fact that nobody seemed to know what to do about it. And so if you look at the Annapolis Conference in 1786, um, which most people tend to think is the forerunner of the Constitutional Convention, that was a commercial conference. Mm -hmm. And even though it was very poorly attended, the reason people showed up to that conference was to try to get some handle on what was causing this depression, how to possibly get out of it, etc. Um, so in that way, the federal government did very little um, as far as active policy, but it did result in the Constitution, which ended up addressing a lot of the kind of political economy questions that existed during that time. The panics of 1791 and 1792 are a very different story. And I, I uh, have talked about this with people who run financial firms, uh, students uh, in undergraduate institutions as well as business schools, and they're shocked to find out uh, that 1791 was the first bank bailout in American history, right? So you have this financial crash surrounded uh, uh, coming from um, crashes in a couple of financial assets, um, one of which and the most important of which was the stock of the first national bank, the Bank of the United States. Um, and then you have a massive uh, collapse in, in August and September of 1791 to the point where in Philadelphia men were killing themselves. Um, because they were in such debt that they had lost everything. There was a couple of people where uh, doctors of the period claim had, had lost their minds, had had complete and total nervous breakdowns. Uh, Thomas Jefferson reported uh, people at the docks uh, or workers at the docks completely abandoning their ships and going in to speculate in these financial assets. Um, and a general shutdown of, of the financial system for sure, which was very new, but starting to cascade into the broader economy. And at that point, the Hamilton Treasury stepped in, uh, as we've seen in recent years, with targeted injections of liquidity into the market to kind of halt this uh, cascading cycle of, of asset prices falling and, and, and everything that kind of comes out of that. Um, and he did this multiple times. He did it in, in the original crash in, in August, and then he did it again in September. Um, and then uh, in an even more sophisticated way, in 1792, he stepped into markets. And not only did he do that, but he guaranteed, guaranteed debt. Of, of the federal government. He guaranteed different kinds of equities from different banks. He actually coordinated banks from all across the country to kind of stop uh, their pullback from markets and to get them to actually engage again. And so in a lot of ways, the things that people tend to think are very, very modern occurrences are quite literally as old <laughs> as, as the republic yeah. itself. So Now, what... Um yeah, I think the the sort of standard line that most Americans are familiar with is, you know, that Alexander Hamilton liked banks hmm. and maybe was bad, and that Thomas Jefferson didn't like banks and is maybe good. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know, you, you, you mentioned this a very, very Hamiltonian um, exercise as an intervention, um, and Jefferson's like watching people on the docks. Right. So what, what, what is what is what is? I love Tom, but seriously, yeah. Um, you know, so what what was the uh, you know was there some sort of equivalent of of uh, you know the the anti tarp crowd you know in in. Is it mostly the Jeffersonians, or, or how did that? What was the public reaction to some of this government intervention in the markets? Yeah, this was something that people because I don't think we we hear about this. We know? do hear about this, and that's the thing is, I really kind of don't like that. You know, history mm-hmm. doesn't repeat itself; it rhymes, kind of quote. But in this case, it it's apt to to a pretty decent degree. Um, but there was considerable pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, Partially because people, you know, people today don't really get what's going on. Um, understandably, there's there's a certain level of complexity that's beyond even professionals' ability to kind of grasp. That said, you got to think about this in the context that banks themselves were very, very new. The first mm-hmm. bank in what would be the United States was set up in 1781. You know, this is 1791. Um, there were three banks in the country at the time. Um, and so part of it was that people simply didn't know what was going on. Um, but to just simply say they were ignorant is, is a cop-out as well. Mm-hmm. People had a decent idea, um, at least of the, the broader merits, um, that there was a group of, of speculators, quote-unquote, um, that had caused some significant um, issues in the market and that the government had stepped in and in some cases bailed them out, some that definitely did not happen. I want to be very clear about that. But they had backstopped certain players in the market that, that the public viewed as... Too big to fail. As it, They were. <laughs> yeah. They were in many cases. Several of them were, yeah. And, and, and people had a problem with that. So what you saw, the reaction was different in different places. But in Philadelphia, where the panic was the worst and, and where kind of the bulk of the trading took place, um, you saw pushes for legislation actually banning different kinds of banks' transactions, banning different types of very, very modern financial contracts uh, that existed, and you saw electoral pushback. And so um, I would argue, and I, I think there's a wide array of evidence to, to take this, um, that the reason Philadelphia switched from kind of a Federalist stronghold to a Jeffersonian stronghold was because of these two financial panics. You saw um, Federalist congressman, uh, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Fitzsimmons, who represented Philadelphia itself, um, who was kind of tied to this financial industry. He had won by 30 or 40 points. Um, in the election of 1792, he wins by a couple of points, and then the next term he, he gets defeated pretty soundly. And this happened not just in Philadelphia, but in places uh, elsewhere in the country. So you see this pushback in multiple arenas, um, not just from, from Jeffersonians, but from people who would be kind of politically mo- political moderates, I mm-hmm. would say, as well. Um. So what, uh, you know, to, 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 again, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's definitely a story, I, I think it's fair to say, the vast majority of Americans aren't familiar with. True. Um, but so since we have you on, 
uh, and and you are in fact an expert in the early American economy. Oh boy, um, you know that that more traditional narrative, economic narrative that most Americans are familiar with, the Jeffersonian versus Hamiltonian right. thing. Could you um, unpack that for us? Sure. Uh, just to sort of refresh everybody's memory uh, in general, and then maybe provide a more nuanced education that, or more nuanced explanation than they were able to get before. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of the traditional narrative uh, that you have is you have Hamilton and the Federalists who are pro-bank, pro-commerce um, on one side, and then you have the Jeffersonians who were anti-bank, anti-finance, pro-agriculture on the other. Um, this is true to a certain extent, um, but to a, a large degree, um, that that's problematic. And, and I would say um, that that's the case for a couple of reasons. The first is um, the Jeffersonians were not anti-bank. They were anti-federalist bank. Um, and how that kind of functioned, what, what, you know, we could go into all the details of what a federalist bank and a Jeffersonian bank looked like. But the idea that, that the Jeffersonians and even Jefferson himself were against banking writ large is, is a bit problematic. They wanted banks that were more um, what we might call today commercial banks as opposed to the Federalists who are more in favor of what we might call investment banks. Um, but the reason kind of goes down to that ideology that, that's kind of at the core. Um, so the Jeffersonians were definitely in favor of agriculture, and they were in favor of agriculture largely because they believed that a virtuous citizenry would not be made up of merchants and people tied into to, uh, big cities, but uh, they would be virtuous by working the land. And because of that, you had to have a continued expansion of the United States in geographic sense so that... Um, matching the population, you could have these virtuous farmers who were working the land and and so on. Jefferson's long experience of working the land. Oh yes, the guy definitely you know <laughs> learned how to uh, uh, you know use a Killer, shovel by age, being yeah. carried around on a, on a satin pillow by mm-hmm. a slave. Well, that was his famous his first memory, right? Yeah. Um, the Federalists had, and Hamilton, the Hamiltonians had a bit of a different vision, and why I kind of analogize. Federalist banks to more investment banks is because their vision was far more industrial. Mm -hmm. Both sides believed in commerce and trade. Uh, The Jeffersonians believed in trade, but they believed in commerce and trade as an outlet for the surplus for farmers. So farmers and agriculture will remain, would remain um, the primary avenue of economic growth. We would send off the rest of what we uh, grew to places all over the world. Hamilton and the Federalists believed in in um, agriculture to a degree, but they believed that you could really get the efficiencies and the productivity enhancement um, from more complicated trade and specifically industry. And they really wanted to be able to develop kind of a British-style um, industrial state. And to, in order to get that, you had to have bigger, more consolidated banks that would more loan on large scale to industry. Now, this did not work for the Federalists. Um, and there's you know several reasons for it. The, the, the 
most important um, being that you have to have a, a, a ready supply of, of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and labor was very, very expensive in the United States. Um, in addition to that, um, you had to have a large supply of capital. And capital was very expensive in the United States. And so in order to get this kind of British-style industrial state going, the two things that Britain had uh, was cheap labor and cheap capital. The United States didn't have that. So the United States was never going to compete with Britain on that scale. And that was something Hamilton was very, very wrong about. Um, That said, the vision of kind of um, creating this commercial regime where finance played a critical role, um, finance, not mm-hmm. necessarily economics, but finance, um, was more of a Hamiltonian project simply because he believed that financial assets could be something that had value in and of themselves. Jefferson could not understand this whatsoever. The idea that a piece of paper, simply by the fact that more people wanted it, could increase in value where he hadn't put anything into it, that wasn't his game. Um, so I, I would kind of sum up the differences between them in that way. Now, do you think, because uh, you, you, you have been now teaching um, about the early American economy for, for a little while, um, which also means just you're teaching about econ in general. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you've been doing that for a while. Um, what do you think – what have you found most of the, the students you're talking to, uh, and, and whether they're, they're undergrads, graduate students, or just the general public, mm-hmm. right? we're all students at all times. Sure. What do you think the – when your experience, uh, when you're trying to talk to people about this, um, what do you think the what's, – what what's Americans' baseline on – understanding economic and financial issues? Um, That's a good question. I would say the baseline is what affects them. And I think that's fine, in all honesty. I think that's a decent baseline to have. Um, So, for example, for students uh, and history students, liberal arts students, etc., they're interested in things like student loans. Mm -hmm. That directly affects them. Um, they're interested in what the economy is going to look like because they're going to have to face the job market in a few years. Um, and so they kind of build their knowledge off those issues that are close to them. Uh, I also teach and work with MBA students um, at business schools, and their baseline is very, very different, right? Um, they tend to think a lot about international trade, uh, growing economic competition, whether that be between the United States and China or issues of, of globalization. Um, that's a really kind of baseline uh, thing that they kind of build out from. Of course, you know, at business schools, you have a lot of people mm-hmm. interested in finance. And so while they're, they're knowledge and understanding of kind of the minute uh, aspects of credit default swaps or whatnot may be very, very good. Their kind of understanding of broader macro economy is not. Um, So I would say that those are kind of the baseline about it. But I would say that the one thing that kind of unites them uh, across the board, really, is the idea that we're facing something new. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be 
the kind of guy, you know, the historian with his arm patches, you know, his elbow patches who sits back and say, you know, of course, everything's happened before. Just to be clear, he's saying this as he's wearing a sweater and a, and a nice tie. And I am. I yeah. do not have and elbow not patches. Have, does Thank not have you. the jacket on. This is perfect yeah. for an audio mm-hmm. medium. Uh, but yes, theater of the mind, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I guess the thing is that uh, everybody tends to think that we're facing something new. Um, whether that be uh, a unique situation as far as global competition, <laughs> uh, as far as technology, as far as financial sophistication causing problems, um, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody tends to think, or, or, or in, in the undergraduate's case, you know, uh, young people being saddled with debt that they don't know that they're going to get out of. Um, everybody seems to be concerned about this, not necessarily because it's an issue, although all of those are, but because they say, well, we don't have any precedent to deal with this. How do we deal with this if, if this is a new mm-hmm. thing? And my, my uh, words on that is not necessarily that these are not issues that we have to address, but simply that Take a deep breath. Take a deep <laughs> breath. You know, this is kind of the I, – I, I was talking to my advisor a while back, and, um, you know, we were talking about the idea of history, uh, and he kind of played off this like, classical idea of what the conservative should be. And, you know, the historian's view or job should be to stand up and, and say, okay, slow down. Mm-hmm. Not saying we're going to get out of this, but it's not impossible. We've dealt with things like this before. Whether we live up to that challenge is a whole other issue. But the idea is that we can deal with this. It's not overpowering. It's not overwhelming. Um, And that's where somebody who deals with both finance, econ, business, and particularly history, um, I think that gives me a bit of hope, Mm -hmm. even though some things may you know, seem intractable if you watch the news 24 hours a day. Yeah. Well, I would recommend no one watch the news 24 <laughs> yeah. hours a day just for their, their health because yep. sleep is important. It is. And um, sanity is important. Yeah. Too. 16 hours a day might still be a bit too much. Mm. Um, well, the reason I, I, I sort of ask is, you know, it, it I feel like, um, you know, lots of times if you read PhD historians work, they're a very bright person, um, clearly very academically accomplished. But, I mean, if you've ever just been to a history conference and tried to watch them divide their checks in the restaurant at dinner, uh-huh. um, you know, a lot of us are here because we're liberal arts majors and we aren't <laughs> terribly good at math. Yep. Um, and does that, I mean, in, have you observed, uh, that does that have any effect on the scholarship that um, finance and, and economics isn't, isn't terribly understood by the American population, whether that's a PhD in history or just the average voter. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, you could throw out there at the argument that, well, the average voter should have a little more knowledge about this because right. they're expected to elect representatives sure. that would make those decisions. But, um, you know, have you found uh, that it's had any effect on the historiography of early America that if the historians writing don't understand the arguments that a Jefferson or a Hamilton are trying to make about the economy, then can they actually unpack and interpret 
the arguments right. Jefferson and Hamilton are trying to make about the economy. Right. Yeah, that's that's another excellent question. Um, I would say kind of a twofold answer. One, I'm trying to get you a job here. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to have to face that yeah. pretty soon. Um, I would say, first off, it's not that they don't understand the questions that Jefferson or Hamilton were asking. Because mm-hmm. if they're in- interested in Jefferson or Hamilton, they'll read them and learn them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem comes is them not seeing other arguments altogether, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't have that filter to look through that they may not necessarily avoid things that have the tinge of economics or finance, even though those things permeate, permeate daily Everything. life, yeah. unlike anything else. Everybody in the country and pretty much on the planet pays for something every day. And you are the, the product of macroeconomic forces that you cannot control. Um, but I would really emphasize that, that the, the historiography of early America has not suffered because people don't learn about Hamilton or Jefferson's arguments. Yeah, yeah. It's because they don't see the forces, um, the economic or financial forces that are shaping the thing they're actually concerned about. So, for example, uh, going back to something we talked about earlier, I can't count the number of books that have been written on the Constitution. Mm-hmm. In my opinion... That don't bring up the economy. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, dead serious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably 10%, mm-hmm. but maybe. And those that levy some kind of sophisticated understanding, for example, um, of, of uh, for, for example, the idea that there was a massive trade war going on amongst the free and previously allied American states immediately after the revolution. Almost no books. There are some, and I want to give those mm-hmm. their, 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 their due. Um, but the problem comes where, you know, how can you address why people wanted to come together as a union without understanding that almost literally every state had massive tariff barriers set up against each other. And that was not only feeding the depression that we're talking about, but making it much, much worse. So that would be the problem that I kind of see um, as far as the historiography goes. And it's a real disservice to the treatment of early America simply because it leads you to miss things that are absolutely vital. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, so we are uh, getting short on time, mm-hmm. uh, and so I want to thank you for coming on the show. But uh, I, 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 I want to also, uh, and we won't do this on the show. We're going to get it on the show page. We're going to get your top five books, absolutely, that people should read if they want to understand this topic more. Um, and so, perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, anybody looking for those. Uh, books, they'll find them on this episode page. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe, for having me on. Um, I've listened to the show, so this is the, you know, the proverbial, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller kind of situation. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a pleasure being here, and thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.